Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning on this, the third Sunday of Advent, uh, also known as Gaudete Sunday, uh, which in English would be Rejoice Sunday. That's why the third Advent candle is pink, uh, because pink in the worshiping life of the church, or rose, as some of us like to say, represents joy. Uh, The word Gaudete is a second-person plural imperative, and that's important to understand because that means that it's really saying, hey, you, like you all, rejoice. It's a call to join the joy of the Lord. You are being exhorted this morning to rejoice because the arrival of the Lord is near. The arrival of the one who is the font of our joy is upon us. Said plainly, it's almost Christmas. We're getting close. And that is cause for rejoicing. The most famous Advent hymn, uh, and it is an Advent hymn, not a Christmas hymn, which I think we'll sing next week. Right, Eric? I'm not, oh, I was looking for you over there. There you are. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall, shall come to thee, O Israel. So it's Rejoice Sunday. So on this Gaudete Sunday, why is the gospel reading focused on John the Baptist? We perhaps don't readily associate joy with John the Baptist. I mean, he's a strict ascetic. His life is marked by fasting rather than feasting. He's a prophet who prepares the way of the Lord by calling people to repentance and warning of judgment. John's rhetoric in the Gospels Uh, is hardly winsome. In Matthew 3, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism. We could say that they were visiting his church. And these were people with status, with clout. It would be akin to a group of bishops or politicians uh, coming to check out all souls. But because they came to the river Jordan insincerely, self-righteously, maliciously, and with hard hearts, John does not say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Grab a cup of coffee in the narthex, and could you stay after the service so that we can get a picture for Instagram? No, he says to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Are you feeling the joy yet from John? Repentance in and of itself is not joyous, but it leads to joy. Repentance is the prerequisite for joy. And as the collect for 
The second Sunday of Advent says, we heed the message of the prophets so that we can greet our Lord with joy. There is no joy apart from repentance. You cannot bask in the light unless you turn from darkness. The prodigal son was not laughing and smiling while he made the long journey home. But once he repented, saying to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, it was then that he entered into joy. The fatted calf was killed and he entered into the feast, the party. John's ministry, though not ostensibly, but actually, called people into the joy of the Lord. John was all about joy. And John's very presence is cause for joy. Because the birth of John and the rise of his ministry means that Jesus is almost here. As the hymn goes, the one we just sang, on Jordan's bank the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of Kings. The coming of the Lord is good news for God's children. It's not a source of sadness or terror, but comfort and joy. Now, there's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 of which Jews living at the time the scriptures were written, Jews of what's called uh, the Second Temple period, they would have been very much aware. And it The prophecy in Malachi says that Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, the great prophet in Israel, will return and that his coming will immediately precede that of the Messiah. That's why the priest and Levites in our gospel, John 1 verse 21, asked John, are you Elijah? John says that he is not. And that's true. John the Baptist is not the historical Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated. But nevertheless, typologically, spiritually, and prophetically, he is Elijah. For John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and our Lord says as much. So when you read the Gospels together, You know, you have John saying, I'm not Elijah, but then you have Jesus saying, sort of, "Uh, actually, John, you are. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this of John the Baptist. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then in Matthew chapter 17, at the transfiguration, do you remember who shows up on Mount Tabor with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. 
But it's interesting, after the transfiguration in Matthew's gospel, on the way down the mountain, Peter, James, and John are asking Jesus questions, of course. You've seen something no one's ever seen before. You might have some questions. And they ask him about Malachi 4. They ask him about Elijah because they had just seen him. Yet listen to what Jesus says. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So quick time out. The Bible's amazing. But what we have here is this double fulfillment of Malachi 4 because John as the forerunner comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and the historical Elijah appears at the transfiguration, which is according to tradition, 40 days prior to the crucifixion in which Jesus accomplishes his exodus. The presence of John the Baptist means that the arrival of the Lord is near and that is cause for joy. John was not conflict adverse to speaking hard truths, but he is nevertheless full of joy in the Lord. Again, John is all about joy, and today, by his life, we're called to share in his joy. We're called to emulate his joy, because when the Lord drew near to him, as he now draws near to us, John rejoiced. When Our Lady, when the Blessed Virgin Mary was pregnant with our Lord, she went to visit her relative, sometimes rendered cousin, Elizabeth, who was six months, about six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And when John, yet unborn, hears the voice of Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, what does he do? The Bible says that he leaps for joy in the womb. How amazing is that? That in utero, John is worshiping the Lord. He is rejoicing at the coming of the Lord. And Mary, as she experiences all of this, responds in song saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. The coming of the Lord, his arrival in the manger drew near, and John and Mary rejoiced. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice with them because the coming of the Lord is near. And let us rejoice always. For the life and salvation we have in Christ is cause for joy. And the hope we have of his return is cause for joy. 
St. Paul writes in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And Paul writes in today's epistle, along with Timothy and Sylvanius. It was a group project, but I think Paul did most of the heavy lifting. Kind of like in high school and science lab, you find the valedictorian and you just kind of coast. I think that's maybe what Timothy and Sylvanius did writing 1 Thessalonians. But 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which is tied with John 11.35 for the shortest verse in the English Bible. Unless you count the letters, then John 11.35 wins. But you can at least memorize this scripture. It simply says, rejoice evermore. Rejoice always. First Thessalonians is a book that's full of comfort and joy and encouragement. The church at Thessalonica is a model church plant. Paul's so excited about what God's doing in their lives. I think he's just happy he doesn't have to write another letter to Corinth. He sends Timothy there, and Timothy comes back and gives a good report. And there's not, that I, I would, there's not one rebuke in the whole letter. There's exhortation. There's warning. But Paul's like, what else can I say? Your witness has gone throughout the whole world. It's full of comfort and joy and encouragement. And it's something you can read in one sitting. I'd argue when we read books of the Bible, especially ones that are epistles, and that's just a fancy church word for letter, we should read them in one sitting. When you, when you get, that's how letters are meant to be read. When I get a letter, especially if it's from someone I love, an important letter, I don't say, well, I'm going to read a sentence a day. <laughs> that doesn't work because by day 20, I'm not going to remember what the first sentence said. But yet we do that with the letters that God has given us by the Holy Spirit through his servants, the apostles and prophets. Amazing. It's an eminently practical book as well. In many ways, I love it. It's simple, it's straightforward, and it's blunt. It's just giving direction. And in the later chapters in which today's reading is found, there is teaching, re, teaching regarding the second coming and how we ought to prepare as Christians and more generally, how we ought to live as we wait for his arrival, how we ought to live between the advents, between his first coming and his second coming. And we learn from this text and others that rejoicing is an integral component of Christian living. Rejoice. Well, when? Evermore. Always. This is more than the power of positive thinking. This is more than the Pauline take on the famous song by Bobby Farron, Don't Worry, Be Happy, which I love that song, by the way. It's deeper than that. We can... Because our rejoicing is in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And that joy is not rooted in our circumstances, but in who he is and what he has done for us and the hope that he has given us for the future, namely the hope of the resurrection and the life of the world to come. We can rejoice because Christ has come, Christ is coming, Christ will come again. We can rejoice, we can take heart. This is part of what's going on in this text because we know that this present life will for the Christian end and give way to eternal and unspeakable joy. Again, Paul writes, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Notice the scope of these statements. And then he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So much energy is spent in Christendom, in the church, on discerning God's will for our lives. God, what do you want me to do for a job? Who do you want me to marry? What do you want me to wear today? Where's the parking space at Target that you have for me? And God is saying through his servant, Paul, the will of God for your life is to rejoice in the Lord, to pray without ceasing. That is to be in continual communion with God. That everything you think, say, and do is an offering in his presence. And to give thanks. Earlier in the same letter, Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now these were Gentile Christians, so he goes on to warn them about sexual immorality, not to get caught up in their pagan past. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What's sanctification? To make, to set apart, to make holy. The will of God is that we would come into relationship with him and be holy as he is holy. His will for your life is to know him and make him known. And here's the reality. If, well, let me back up. It's kind of spicy, but I'm going to say it. Here we go. We're so concerned about direction for all these areas in our life when we're not even following the revealed will of God in Holy Scripture. It's like we're worried about doing a behind-the-back pass or dunking when we can't even dribble or make a layup. (laughs) And it's not something we need to fret about, the will of God for our lives, because the sovereign will of God is not weak. And if you focus on the revealed will of God, you cannot miss the particular will of God for your life.
If in the power of the Holy Spirit, you simply pursue the life that you know you ought to, you cannot miss God's will for your life. It's impossible. It's impossible. God will get you where you're supposed to go. If you follow what you know of God's will, what you don't know of God's will will take care of itself. The Christian life is certainly not easy. It's not. But it's not as complicated as we make it. I think it is rather simple. And Paul continues in this letter, not with abstract theory, but with concrete instruction and exhortation. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesies. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. So we're not to quench the spirit. We're not to resist the spirit. We're not to grieve the spirit, but to be filled with the spirit, to walk by the spirit, to cooperate with grace so that our hearts and lives are transformed. We're not to despise the prophets like John the Baptist, such as John the Baptist. But listen to them. We're to heed the scriptures and learn by the scriptures and by the spirit to test the spirits. That is to discern the difference between things that are of God and things that are not of God. To discern the difference between good and evil and then to cling to the former and eschew the latter. At the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he offers a benediction which can serve us as a reminder that God is the one who is going to enable us to live the lives of joy and gratitude and prayer and holiness to which he calls us. He's going to do the work. He loves us. He is for us. He is faithful. And by his spirit, he is going to make us ready for the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. So let us end with this benediction. I'll pray it over you. Verses 23 and 24, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.